Howard Hughes was a successful business tycoon, investor, aviator, aerospace engineer, inventor, and filmmaker. At the time of his death, his net worth was about $6.2 billion. He designed, built, and piloted the fastest and largest aircraft in existence. He owned a private fleet of jets, hotels, and casinos. He married and divorced three times. In addition, he dated countless famous actresses, from Betty Davis to Katherine Hepburn. He was such a politician that two U.S. presidents became his pawns. It was said he virtually had everything a man could want, except, except relatives and close friends who actually cared about him. He died a total recluse, sometimes not seeing sunlight months on end. He was literally unrecognizable at the time of his death. He concluded his life emaciated, rotting black teeth, tumors, countless needle marks from drug addiction, sunken chest, colorless, fingernails and grotesque inches long corkscrews, and although his frame still stretched to six feet and four inches in length, he was so malnourished he weighed only 90 pounds. His corpse was so pathetic the FBI had to use fingerprints in order to confirm his identification. When asked to claim the body, his nearest relative, who happened to be a distant cousin, exclaimed, Is this Mr. Hughes? Time magazine reported that at his passing, not a single acquaintance or relative mourned his death. The only honor he received was a moment of silence in his Las Vegas casinos. Time magazine said, quote, Howard Hughes' death was commemorated in Las Vegas with a minute of silence. Casinos felt silent. Housewives stood clutching paper cups full of coins at the slot machines. The blackjack games paused, and at the crap tables the stickmen cradled the dice in the crook of their wooden wands. Then a pit boss looked at his watch, leaned forward, and whispered, Okay, roll the dice. He's had his minute. Mr. Hughes died friendless, and that is so sad to me. Someone has suggested there are four classifications of friends, four basic groupings of friends. First, there are acquaintances. Acquaintances interact on an infrequent and superficial basis. Acquaintances have minimal contact with one another and most often hide behind a facade because no one wants an acquaintance to see who he actually is. Then there are casual friends. Casual friends have more contact with one another than acquaintances do. A casual friend might be a classmate, a teammate, or a workmate in the cubicle next to us. Most friends on Facebook are probably casual friends. And then there are close friends. Close friends share more of themselves with one another. Close friends often hang out together. And sometimes, sometimes might open up to one another. And then the fourth category are intimate friends. Intimate friends are committed to maintaining contact even if geographical distance separates them. Texting, email, phone calls, and visits if possible. Intimate friends have permission to criticize and correct one another without being rejected. Intimate friendships are authentic. 
Each friend is transparent. No subject is off limits. There are no secrets between them. That is intimate friendship. Notice that the number of friends someone might have in each grouping decreases the farther we go down the list. Most people have more acquaintances than casual friends, then more casual friends than close friends, and then more close friends than intimate friends, and then some people might not even have a single intimate friend. But also notice that as the number of friends decreases in each succeeding group, the actual authenticity of those friendships increases in each succeeding group. Group one being the least authentic friends, and then friend group four being the most authentic friends. Our focus this morning is on group four, because intimate and authentic friends are friends that matter most. The most profound ancient biblical example of that would have been Jonathan's friendships to David. The name Jonathan means gift of God. Understand that friendships are a gift to us from God. Instead of something we have just manipulated into existence, Jonathan and David's friendship did not result from careful and scheming preparation because if it had, that friendship would never have existed. Consider how odd these friends were. Jonathan's father was Saul. Saul was the first king of ancient Israel. So Jonathan was raised in the palace. Jonathan was in his mid to late thirties at this time and David was still a teenager. Jonathan had much more to lose in his friendship with David than David did with Jonathan. Jonathan was the prince. David was only an unknown sheep herder. Jonathan came from an influential father that had money and power. David came from a modest household that had almost no resources and influence. On the surface, this friendship should never have been, but God brought them together. I'm going to give four characteristics of this friendship these men shared together, and in particular, Jonathan. The first characteristic of an intimate, authentic friendship is that a true friend sacrifices for his friend. A true friend sacrifices for his friend. First Samuel chapter 18, David had just defeated Goliath, and Goliath wasn't some exaggerated mythical man. He was an actual gigantic human being that was nine and a half feet in height. And God enabled David to bring him to the ground using just one small stone from a slingshot. But David was a total unknown. So Saul arranged a meeting and interviewed him to learn more about him. Now notice verse 1. And when he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, meaning after this interview, Saul had arranged to meet David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Mention the word soulmate, and most people think soulmates are male and female. But from this statement, it seems that men can also be soulmates to one another. And Jonathan and David demonstrated that fact. Verse 2, Saul took him, David, that day 
and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Now please don't misinterpret that move on Saul's part as him being generous and hospitable to David. It wasn't. He has an ulterior motive. In defeating this giant Goliath, David had earned instant celebrity status throughout Israel. He was now a household name. And Saul was jealous. And Saul perceived him to be a threat to his throne. So Saul brought David into his house, not to honor him, but to watch him. Verse 3. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. Notice, Jonathan and David made a covenant. Because he, Jonathan, loved him, David, as his own soul. Jonathan and David entered into a covenantal friendship. The word covenant means agreement. That covenant acted as a mutual agreement between them that obligated them to care about the interests and needs of one another until death. And notice, Jonathan is the one that initiated that friendship agreement. Jonathan invested more into this friendship up front than David did. David actually invested more into that friendship on the backside because after Jonathan died, David cared for his then orphaned and crippled son named Mephibosheth. And he did that to honor his friendship to his father. Verse 4, And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan and David have just agreed on a covenant, uniting them as friends. Jonathan then ratified that covenant and demonstrated his commitment to that friendship through giving him things that were extremely important and personal to him. Jonathan gave David his special robe that belonged only to the crown prince. Jonathan also gave him his custom-made sword, bow, and belt. Jonathan made a personal sacrifice to demonstrate to his friend that nothing would interfere in that friendship, including his status as the prince. Jonathan's actions, though, were more than just a generous personal gesture. That robe symbolized the ancient kingdom of Israel. Jonathan was the potential heir to his father's throne. But through this one gesture, in giving David that robe, he sacrificed his entire future. In a literal sense, he forfeited to David his future position as Israel's king. That would be in accordance to what God wanted, but that was a sacrifice on Jonathan's part. Since 1980, Make-A-Wish Foundation has been granting wishes from children with life-threatening illnesses. And most of the time, a child's wish is to throw out the first pitch at a professional ball game or go to the White House and meet the president or spend a vacation at Disney World. But critically ill, nine-year-old Mac Shoeless decided to do something selfless. He wanted to bless others. He got the Make-A-Wish Foundation to build something for his friends. He convinced them 
as his final wish to construct a large rock climbing wall on the playground of his elementary school so his friends could have fun climbing long after the brain tumor took his life. David Nee's principal at that 600 student suburban school said, we all learned a valuable lesson from a nine-year-old that even when we're going through tough times we should still be thinking of other people and not just ourselves. That sort of selfless sacrifice is part and parcel to true, authentic, intimate friendship. The second characteristic of intimate, authentic friendship is that a true friend defends his friend. A true friend defends his friend. In this passage from 1 Samuel chapter 19, we learn Saul had become so extremely jealous, he wanted David dead. He actually wanted his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. Notice, um, Jonathan is siding against his father, and Jonathan is defending his friend David. And that was important since David wasn't there to defend himself. 1 Samuel 19 verse 1, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. At this moment in time, Saul probably did not know that Jonathan had befriended David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted, delighted greatly in David. Verse 2, So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore please be on your guard until morning, and stay in a secret place and hide. Verse 3, And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Verse 4, Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father. Notice, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father, and said to him, Saul, let not the king, meaning his father Saul, sin against his servant, against David. Because he, David, has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. Jonathan said, he hasn't wronged you. In fact, he's been extraordinarily helpful to you. Why? Verse 5, for he took his life in his hands and killed a Philistine, meaning Goliath. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Jonathan, in that conversation he has with his father, demonstrated that authentic friends defend one another, no matter what it might cost them. A true friend has his friend's back. If someone is bad-mouthing our friend, and our friend isn't there to defend himself, question, how do we react to that? Do we say nothing and remain uninvolved? Do we join in that gossip and slander against our friend in order to save ourselves from possible embarrassment and or rejection? Or do we come to our friend's defense? Don't misunderstand this. 
If our friend is being accused of doing something inappropriate or something worse, committing some sin or a crime, and if this isn't some pre-existing problem we're already aware of, and so we understand that the probability of our friend doing that is real, um, if it isn't those things, then we should first defend our friend to this critic. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7 teaches, if we love someone, then we give them the benefit of the doubt. So we defend our friend. And then after defending our friend against those often slanderous accusations, we should then bring that matter to our friend in private to make him aware that this was being said about him and to see if there was any substance to what was being said. This is a total hypothetical example. I mentioned earlier Bev Anderson owns Sunflower Preschool. Uh, she also owns an awesome, fully restored, Matador Red 1957 Chevy. It's beautiful. She actually let me drive it once, which was a bold move on her part. <laughs> suppose, suppose, suppose someone in town approaches me and says, say, uh, do you know Bev Anderson? Yes, I do. Bev is my friend. Then you should probably talk to her. Why, why would that be? Because she's been driving that old Chevy around town like she's the little old lady from Pasadena. She blows through this town like a bat out of hell. She drives as if stop signs don't exist in that 25-mile zone is just a suggestion. That woman is crazy. Now, if I'm a true friend, then I defend Bev and react to that slanderous accusation. What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> I argue, no, 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 that can't be right. That is totally inconsistent with who she is. I know Bev, she wouldn't do that. That doesn't make sense. Seriously, you must be mistaken. This has to be someone else. Maybe she has an evil twin we don't know about, but this is not Bev. I would defend Bev to this critic. Because true friends stand up for one another. And then afterwards, I would contact Bev and ask her if she had a clue as to what this guy was talking about. Again, that would never happen. But it illustrates that a true friend defends his friend and defends his friend and defends his friend until there is evidence he can no longer do that in good conscience. And then he has to confront his friend about telling him the truth. The third characteristic of an intimate, authentic friendship is that a true friend has a heart-to-heart -heart connection to his friend. A true friend has a heart-to-heart -heart connection to his friend. 1 Samuel 20, verses 41 and 42. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. David is seen bowing down to Jonathan, his friend, three times. He did that in order to acknowledge Jonathan as the prince and to honor him. 
And then notice, the statement is made, and they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Some theologically liberal progressives argue that this was an ancient, this was ancient homoeroticism. This was same-sex attraction that might have been sexual in nature. That is not possible. That is an impossible interpretation of what happened here. Both David and Jonathan were married to women. And more important, Jonathan and David were devout, religious, Jewish men committed to the Mosaic Law and would not have violated Old Testament moral standards. This was a pure platonic friendship. That is all it was. This kissing one another was not a romantic kiss, but an ancient custom used in both greeting and parting where men kissed one another on the cheek. That is still part of some modern cultures even now. Men have greeted me before with a kiss on the cheek. Now, I'm not into that so much, but that's okay. I understand. Verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord. That is a reference to that covenantal friendship made earlier. Uh, that covenant, that agreement to continue to be friends no matter what. May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Saul's anger toward David had intensified to the point it wouldn't be safe for David if Jonathan and David were caught together. So these friends were forced to say goodbye so David could go on and hide from Saul. This was the last time Jonathan and David would see one another on this earth. Both men were strong and battle-experienced warriors, but Jonathan and David were also sensitive men. And there had been such a heart-to-heart -heart connection in this friendship between them that in parting, both men, it is said, cried much tears. And notice, especially... David did. I might add, real men do cry. Real men do not apologize for tears. Jesus didn't. The Bible records three different times where Jesus wept. And no one would accuse Jesus of being less than masculine. And then notice that both men also renewed that earlier friendship covenant before separating from one another. Meaning that although separated from that moment on, Jonathan and David would continue to be soulmates and intimate friends until the end. There was nothing superficial about this friendship. I believe the same heart-to-heart -heart connection ought to characterize marriage friendship. Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't. I heard from a Vietnam veteran that spent months at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in the late 60s. He told stories, horrific stories about some women, not most women, but some women, he said, who came the first time to see their husbands who had returned as casualties from that war. These women would go into the hospital room and see that husband in bed missing appendages or suffering from severe burns 
or see he had serious head trauma and brain injuries. And because his injuries were irreversible, she would take off her wedding ring, set that ring on the table beside his bed, and walk out of the room. That, that isn't fictitious. He said, I've witnessed that. That's not authentic love. That's not authentic friendship. Proverbs 17, 17 reads, A friend loves, and how often does a friend love? Sometimes? No. A friend loves at all times. True friends persevere together through good times and bad times, through ups and downs, through celebrations and sadness. A friend is a friend is a friend is a friend no matter what. This heart-to-heart -heart connection is one reason it is not uncommon in marriages lasting decades. If one partner dies, then the surviving partner feels so disconnected from his mate. That separation has been so traumatic that he or she dies soon afterwards themselves. I have officiated at countless funerals and memorial services. And just once, just one time, did I officiate at a service where there were multiple caskets. Al and Ruth Bechtel had been members of the congregation I pastored long before I arrived. Um, he had made millions in the rose business. At one time he had five acres of roses under glass. This man and woman had been best friends and soulmates and marriage partners for 67 years. Amazing statistic. Near the end, she had been suffering from congestive heart failure and he had acquired stage four pancreatic cancer. A friend of mine had been their caregiver and he was at the home sitting at Ruth's bedside. And Mr. Bechtel was in the hospital. Mrs. Bechtel's condition continued to deteriorate until she fell into a coma and soon died. Our friend was there at that moment. He didn't feel though it would be appropriate for him to call the hospital and, and get Mr. Bechtel's room and share that information. That seemed too impersonal. So as soon as he was able and the people from the funeral home had come to retrieve the body, he drove to the hospital went into Mr. Bechtel's room and told, he said, I, I'm so sorry, Al, but Ruth has just passed. Mr. Bechtel heard that, sat up in bed and said, okay, okay, then I can go now too. There had been such a connection between them as partners and friends, he died less than 12 hours after that announcement. And so it was a double casket service. That's a heart-to-heart -heart connection. The fourth characteristic of intimate, authentic friendship is that a true friend is a constant encouragement to his friend. A true friend is a constant encouragement to his friend. 1 Samuel 23, verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, then Jonathan, and this goes back prior to the separation, Jonathan Saul's son arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. That's encouragement. 
verse 17 and he said to him do not fear David do not fear for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you you shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you even my father Saul knows that it was earlier on uh, that after Saul's men had determined uh, David's location in hiding and after Saul had arranged to go after him and murder him it was then at that juncture that Jonathan went to see David to encourage him now think through that Jonathan was taking a chance and even going to see David as Saul was also so upset at Jonathan because Jonathan had befriended David so Saul was upset at David and Saul is also upset at his own son in fact he'd been so upset at Jonathan that he had tried to impale him using a javelin in a fit of paranoid rage fortunately he missed Jonathan met David in the wilderness and reassured him that his father wouldn't be able to find him reassured him that his father wouldn't execute him because Jonathan was convinced God wanted David to be Israel's next king and he did David became Israel's second king after the death of Saul David had been out in the wilderness he was exhausted he was discouraged because he had been an innocent fugitive on the run hiding from Saul and that wasn't a fun experience Jonathan reassured David that he would support David's reign and he promised he would serve beside him and that was his sincere intention although Jonathan his brothers and Saul himself would die in battle before that could ever happen but Jonathan as his friend encouraged David at his darkest moment he was there to encourage him someone said our best friend should bring out the best in us but that requires encouragement one of the Peanuts comic sequences depicted Linus who had just written a comic strip of his own and he wanted Lucy's opinion on what he had done in the first frame he tentatively hands Lucy the comic strip and says Lucy would you read this and tell me if you think this is funny in the next frame Lucy is seen patting her foot as she reads and a grin comes across her face as if she's enjoying the cartoon she looks at Linus and says so Linus who did this Linus sort of puffed out his chest and with a big grin said Lucy I did that in the next frame Lucy is seen wadding it up throwing it in the trash can and saying okay okay then I don't think it's very funny in the last frame Lewis is seen retrieving his comic strip from the trash can putting his blanket over his shoulder looking at Lucy and saying big sisters can be the crabgrass in the lawn of life <laughs> a true friend is never crabgrass to another friend friends encourage one another friends lift someone up who's fallen down friends are optimistic not pessimistic friends don't let friends do something self-destructive friends step in and stop them friends encourage friends some people bring happiness wherever they go and then some people bring happiness whenever they go 
but those people aren't good friends. I believe we should have friends in each of the four categories we have just mentioned. Acquaintances, casual friends, close friends, and in particular we each need an intimate, authentic friend. We each need a Jonathan. That Jonathan might be a marriage partner and should be. That Jonathan might be a classmate or someone from our job or someone we work out with at the gym or another member at the church. But in order to find a Jonathan, we must first be a Jonathan ourselves. We must sacrifice for someone. We must defend someone. We must put our heart into someone. We must encourage someone until we have become a Jonathan ourselves, we will never find a Jonathan. But in addition to finding another Jonathan to befriend us, there is someone else we need. There is someone else we need, someone who has demonstrated to be the most authentic and committed friend someone could ever have. His name is Jesus. Let me demonstrate, I'm wrapping this up, and in doing that, let me demonstrate from Scripture how Jesus has qualified to be the ultimate friend. Notice the screen. This first box represents man, meaning mankind, all people, period. This is man and his sin. I've often heard this line, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. No, that's just psychobabble. We're not all okay. This entire Homo sapiens species has sinned. I met one time one man who claimed he was perfect. And my response was, and you are confused about other things too. No one is perfect. And that is demonstrated in the fact all people die. Death is inevitable consequence from our humanness and sin. Read Romans chapter 5 sometime. There was no death until there was sin. Sin brought about death. It's simple cause and effect. Man has sinned, that's the cause, and man dies, that's the effect. It's interesting though how we want to minimize our own sin and imperfection. I read about a little boy that sent Santa Claus a letter. The letter said, Dear Santa, there are three boys at our house. Jeffrey is four, David is five, and Norman is seven. Jeffrey is good some of the time, David is good some of the time, and Norman is good all of the time. I am Norman. <laughs> Reality check, none of us are a Norman. None of us are good all the time. We commit sins. And those sins have separated us from a perfect and sinless God. Sin has consequences. And the immediate consequence is spiritual separation from God here and now. And then the ultimate consequence is complete separation from God after death. That's called eternal death. This second box represents God. And God is a being that is perfect and totally separate from sin. That's called His holiness. Remember God originally created mankind 
for him to befriend forever. That was the intent. But sin created this gigantic division between us and God. Sin has caused a disconnect and a separation between ourselves and God. And no matter what we do on our own, we cannot reconnect to God. People have tried different things to cross this gap and get to God. People have tried good deeds and religion and morality. But none of those things can bridge that separation between us and God. It's interesting, and I have spoken to, and this is not a ministerial exaggeration, I have spoken to thousands of people about this question. Thousands. Most people, and this is the, the response I receive most, most people feel that being good and doing good is enough to reconnect to God. Being good and doing good is enough to span that chasm or that separation between us and God that sin has caused. Question. If that's true, and it isn't, if that's true though, how good is good enough? No one can tell me. How good is good enough? Is it being as good and doing as much good as Mother Teresa? Because if Mother Teresa's goodness is required from us, then we're all in serious, serious trouble. Good deeds can't bridge that separation. No matter how good we are, no matter how religious we are, no matter how moral we are, we still have a problem, a fundamental sin problem. And from the beginning of time, a perfect and holy God has required that sin be punished. That's called justice. Just as crime must be paid for, sin must be punished. Divine justice. There are two possible solutions to punishing sin. Solution one is that we, those who of us, since we have sinned ourselves, we can be punished for our sins ourselves. That's a logical solution. If you do the crime, you ought to do the time. But that's not a good solution. Because even though we deserve to be punished for our sin, it means if God were to do that, that after we die, we would be separated from God and separated from good, and we would never, ever, ever see heaven. Solution two is that someone who has no sin of his own can substitute himself for us and be punished for our sins. Someone who is sinless can take our place, substitute himself for us, and be punished for our sins. Throughout the Old Testament, that innocent substitute was a sacrificial lamb. 260,000 lambs sacrificed at the Jerusalem temple just at spring Passover season alone. Not counting the thousands more sacrificed at other times. But the ultimate innocent sacrifice was a sinless human sacrificial lamb. And that was Jesus. This month is Christmas, and Christmas means celebrating the fact Jesus as God came to earth to be born a human. He had a dual nature. He was both God and man. He was divine and human in one person. And because he was God and man, he was different than anyone else. Since he was God, and God cannot sin, 
Even though as a man he was tempted to sin, the fact he was God gave him the ability to resist that temptation, and so Jesus, as a man, never, never sinned. He never did anything wrong, never said anything wrong, never thought anything wrong, and he always did what was right. Jesus, the God-man, God incarnate, God in human form, was here, and he never sinned. And since he was sinless, and the only one to ever be that, he qualified to be punished for our sins. And he did that on the cross. Notice the statement Jesus made from John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Paraphrase, there is no greater love than someone that would die for his friends. What Jonathan did for David was exemplary. But that doesn't compare to what Jesus did for us. Jesus is the ultimate friend because he made the ultimate sacrifice in being punished for our sins through his substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus laid down his life in death so that if we would accept him and his sacrifice, God could befriend us again. Jesus' substitutionary sacrificial death for sins on the cross bridged that separation between man and God and made it possible for us to reconnect to God. God punished his own son on the cross so he wouldn't have to punish us. Jesus died. He was buried. But after three days and nights, he cheated on death. He was resurrected from the dead and then he ascended into heaven. And the most exciting part is this morning, Jesus wants a personal relationship with us. He wants to become our intimate, authentic, and best friend. He wants to become our Savior. Savior means forgiver. And that is the essence and meaning of his name, Jesus. If we would believe that Jesus is who he said he was, if we would believe that Jesus did what he said he did, and then if we would receive him into our life, if we would say yes to Jesus, then we could walk on that sacrificial bridge that crosses the separation our sin has caused. And we can be reconnected to God. And then He, God, can befriend us again. There's a small house on the southwest side of Kansas City, 7735 Jefferson Street to be exact. And it was there on a Sunday night, one late October, I made the greatest decision of my entire lifetime. Most people would have described me at that juncture as a good kid. I made good grades. Uh, I never went to the principal's office, almost never got into trouble. I never missed Sunday school. I said my prayers at mealtime and bedtime. I even won prizes for memorizing Bible verses. I had always believed in Jesus intellectually. I cannot remember a conscious time when I did not believe in Jesus. But that wasn't enough. I did not know him in a relational sense. I did not know him in a personal sense until that night. My father was there and he would help me understand. But there was no pastor or priest present in that room. Uh, there was no catechism book uh, read from. There was no sacramental ritual uh, that I needed to perform that night. 
There was none of that. It was just me and Jesus. I had been to church. I came home under so much conviction. This bothered me so much. I couldn't sleep. Got out of bed. Went and knocked on my father's bedroom door and said, Dad, please, let's talk. We went into the front room and I said, Dad, I need to do something tonight. I know I've sinned. I know Jesus was punished for my sins. But that was 19 and a half centuries ago. How do I, how do I connect the dots now? And my dad told me what to do. I bowed my head. I was on my knees, I remember. And I told Jesus that more than anything, I wanted him in my life. I told him that I was trusting him and him alone to be my savior and my forgiver. I invited him to take the steering wheel of my life from that moment on. That was a simple decision, but that decision changed me forever. That simple decision to believe and receive Jesus enabled me to walk across that separation sin had created. And that simple act that night reconnected me to God. And once I did that, the gospel records record that all heaven rejoiced. And so did I. The best decision I've ever made. I have the best friend ever. I have had the privilege of having some amazing friends here on this earth in this lifetime. But I have the best friend imaginable. I have Jesus. Do you have Jesus? Let's bow our heads together. Our heads are bowed very quietly. We're going to conclude our service with a song in just a moment. But before we do, and before I pray, let me just say this for the benefit especially of our guests. There are some of you here this morning, it is possible I might never see you again in this life. It is theoretically possible that might be true. I don't care where you attend church. And if you choose never to visit this church again, I'm okay with that. You have been gracious enough to attend once as a special favor for your friend. And wow, that means so much to all of us. And so it's okay if you don't come back. But I want to know that someday I'll see you in heaven. I'm going to heaven not because I'm a minister, not because I want to be a good husband and father and grandfather and great-grandfather someday. No. I'm not going to heaven because I've been baptized, because I have a theological degree, a master's degree. No, that's not why. I'm going to heaven not because I deserve to. I have sinned, but I have a Savior. His name is Jesus. I have accepted Him. I said yes to Him. And that moment, that decision, that night changed my life. And because of Him, someday I know that I know that I know I will be with Him forever. I want that for you. I, and I mean that. I don't know how to be more sincere. I want that for everyone in this room. No matter if we ever meet again on this earth, I want you to have Jesus. And if God has spoken to your heart today and you feel like you on the inside are, are wanting that too and you have questions, I would be thrilled, I would be honored. If after the service, and I know I'll be greeting people and saying goodbye, if you'll just come to me and say, Pastor, can we, can we meet sometime and talk about that? I, I'd like to make that decision. I'd like to know that I have Jesus. I'd like to be forgiven. I don't want to be separated from God. I want to be His forever. 
I want Jesus as my best friend. And I would be thrilled. We'll set up an appointment. I can meet you at my office. I can meet you at your home. Or we can go to a restaurant. It doesn't matter. And I'll show you how simple it is. And you can invite Jesus into your life too. I hope you won't be bashful. I hope you'll come to me before we leave. Father in heaven, I thank you for this lesson on friendship. And I, this Jonathan, what he, he was an amazing friend to David. And I know David ultimately became an amazing friend to him. And I want that sort of friendship for everyone in this room. We all need a Jonathan. And we all need to be a Jonathan. But more important than that, we all need Jesus. And I pray God that what we've said will cause people to really think about that. Because I want everyone everyone in this room to join us together forever in heaven where we'll never ever ever say goodbye again thank you for loving us thank you for giving us your son and thank you for this service in Jesus name amen